Hey, welcome to the locker room where we break down sermons, stories, and scripture for the race of your faith. If this podcast has been serving you, hit follow, which is available both on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you're on Spotify, hit the notification bell. That way, when we release new episodes, you'll be up to date. Crossroads fam and whoever else is listening, we just love that you get to spend a little bit of time with us. And today I'm so excited, as I always say, because to my right is Libby Van Salkema, and on the computer before us is Miss Kim Hall. And Kim, it's so nice to meet you, but maybe you give us just a little bit of background of how you and Libby know each other. Yeah. Yeah, Libby, you jump in too whenever you want to add a little something. But Libby <laughs> and I know for a long time, and Rod and my husband, David, and I have known each other for a long time too. But Libby and I, believe it or not, with how young she looks, went to high school together. And I coached Matt. Matt Stoll, our worship Matt pastor. Stoll. Yep. Matt Stoll, Libby's brother, in high school men's volleyball at Wheat North High School. So that's kind of how far we got. Oh, so you have Chicago roots. I do, yep. And now you're in Tejas. Now I'm in Austin. <laughs> we've, been, we've been in Austin for a while. I've been on staff at All Saints Church for 11 years. And... Really, I think the main connection with Crossroads is just what profound gratitude I have for the opportunity to travel with Rod and Libby to Israel. Mm. And I went twice with them to Israel and once to Turkey. And it just, it's truly the only, I can only say profound gratitude just for that opportunity to kind of walk the land with them and hear their heart and you know, to some degree, it feels like the scales fall away from your eyes and you really know the scriptures and you want to know them and you know, you know all about them and you're trying so hard. But when you can finally get to kind of do a cross-cultural experience like that, you learn how to, I just usually say, you know, teach the Bible with a Hebrew accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's super exciting, Kim. And it's been such a joy actually to get to know you. And I've actually learned a lot from you as well. And we're going to get to that in a second. But before we do that, I want to back up the truck just a second. Do you have anything you want to tell us about Matt Stoll as a volleyball player? Yeah, oh, was my. he any good? <laughs> Matt is <laughs> Matt, none of good because it was the very first year that Illinois had sanctioned men's volleyball. So no one knew how to play volleyball. So the, <laughs> the best image I can give you is of a gym full of puppies. <laughs> with all these big paws and growing bodies who didn't really know exactly what they were doing. But Matt, man, all I remember, I can close my eyes and be in a huddle and Matt is there, you know, all red faced and sweaty and just smiling, just so, just so happy to be playing (laughs) and and playing the sport. Um, He reminded me of Tigger, you know, just like the way he hopped and bounced around the gym and, um, and Matt could also jump. He was put in a position where he had to play middle blocker and to be able to be quick and you have to be able to jump. And that's what I mostly remember about Matt. So Matt's got some hops. He's got some hops. Yeah. <laughs> and your volleyball coaching is extended beyond that. Uh, it's You coached at UNC, right? I, you'll make that mistake only one time, Trig. Okay. NC, it might have been my mistake. What, did because... you, go, you coach at Duke? NC State. NC State, even worse. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, either way, in that region. 
go Wolfpack. Yeah. Right? After but, coaching a couple years at Wheat North High School, I just, I loved, I'm just, a, I am a coach at heart and I, I love coaching and I loved coaching kind of that level of athlete that you could say, you know, to someone like Matt, go do that. And they were able to go, to go do that. And so I realized I wanted to coach kind of a high level, uh, division one. So that's what I did for almost 10 years. Yeah. What was your experience as a, as a Christ follower in that position? I'm just curious. Uh, yeah. Was that a really cool mission field to be a part of? That's such a great question because I, I imagine that that was why I, God gave me that job because I had no business, um, getting that job at my age. I was only 26 at the time. I didn't have any division one experience and it really was just something straight from the hand of God. And, but it wasn't for the reason that I thought, um, it would be, I think God gave me that position because it was what I most wanted gave me the thing that my heart most desired and said, see, you got it. Now what? <laughs> mm. And I used it as a time of great humbling for me, a time of, I would say, kind of breaking down a lot of hubris um, and realizing that to some degree, you know, I'd been a Christian all my life and there was this idea that you were to be as winsome and as successful and that your, you know, kind of success and standing in the world would be so warm and so winsome that it would draw people to you. And then you would point them to Christ. And I, that's what that time at NC state taught me is that it's not your winsomeness or your success or you being coach of the year or you being, you know, having a winning record it was really that Jesus brought, brings Jesus to himself through you. Yes, but not because of you. Amen. That's such a common perspective. I think that we have to kind of polish things up a little bit in order to make Jesus look attractive in us kind yeah. of in some ways. And the reality is we actually need to reveal our brokenness and reveal how needy and desperate we are. And that's what makes Jesus, I think, so attractive. But I'm like you, Kim. I grew up in a Christian home. Actually, I know you grew up in a great Christian home with amazing, great, yeah, great Christian yeah. parents, and um, just some of those more childlike ideals um, of what we see Christianity to be as we inter- interact and engage with a very secular world. Um, God can kind of show us some of those things as we get a little bit older. And oftentimes that's through some, like you said, some humbling and some pain, suffering, some crashing down of expectations or the way that we think should be or the way that we think things um, would be better if they were. And that's when God or Jesus shines so bright, I think. And speaking of Jesus shining bright, um, Kim, I see Jesus shining bright in crazy ways in your life. And one of the things that has always drawn me to you, and so here at Crossroads, one of our values is worship. And the byline under worship is the wholehearted pursuit of God. And so it's more than just singing songs on Sunday mornings. But how do we posture our lives so that in a wholehearted way, we are pursuing God with everything that we have? And so there's lots of ways that we can do that. Um, You, Kim, have something that I actually am very envious of in a healthy way, 
not a covetous way, but you have this lived into this robust sense of pursuing Christ through a really unusual spiritual discipline that isn't exercised enough today, and that is silence. So when um, I've interacted with you many times, I've been so curious and drawn to your pursuit of Christ through the spiritual discipline of silence. And I know even um, Tina was our worship, our worship women's pastor recently. And so Tina and I took a little bit of a field trip um, to your church to kind of see how you're structuring your women's ministry, just honestly, because we have such deep respect for some of the unique things that you're doing with your women. So talk about that a little bit. I know you've got even a silent retreat coming up. So why do you do that? Why do you push silence into yourself and into the people around you? Great question. Our, yes, we have our 10th annual silent Advent retreat coming up on Saturday. And I wouldn't say it's the most well attended of all of our events, but it is deeply, deeply important um, and I think valued for those that do come. It's, you know, I live in Austin. It's a very tech culture and the noise, the new noise just keeps increasing. And the focus in our attention span and our ability to be present is increasingly becoming more and more fractured. And so providing a place and a time to be um, very present, very purposefully present with God and to have some practices that allow for us to be ever more present um, and it has to start with silence. And then once you have grown, you know, put down some roots and um, have some muscle, I would say, in learning how to be silent, then it becomes a little more easy to carry that out into a world that's very, very noisy. And so I try and build in those times of solitude and silence for myself, but also to teach our women that um, that it is it's one of our spiritual disciplines, and just one we just that's often just very tepid and not very robust. Right, and I think that we've lost. I, I'm interested in what you said. One of the things I picked up on: we've lost our capacity to be bored. Like yeah. we have. I know. I list, I love listening to Jackie Hill Perry, and she was saying the other day that she was equating our phones to the Colosseum in our hands. And at first I was kind of like blood sport. Like I don't watch that stuff. I don't watch any blood sport. I don't watch that much junk. But the more I thought about it is what the Colosseum was to the first century was constant entertainment. And the emperor said, give them their entertainment, give them their sport. It'll distract them enough so they don't see what we're doing over here, which is war and horrible things. As long as we keep them entertained, they're going to love us. And that's really what struck with me. That phone is just constant entertainment. Screens, the loudness you're talking about, not just screens, but other things, it's constant entertainment. So we've lost our capacity to kind of sit in silence and just be bored and then let God speak into that. I know for myself, I definitely have lost my capacity to be bored. So I think that's what I'm so drawn to in that idea, Kim. And as I've seen you in your life, actually just living that out, the depth that it's produced in you is so attractive to me. Mm And so we know we should do those things, but the question is, are we going to actually do the things that we 
know are best for us so that we can actually grow in spending time with Christ. And what about you, Trey? Are you into silence? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm not. Well, you have two little girls, so it's a little harder. No, I, I need it more. I, uh, it's probably, I've had some spiritual directors, I'll put it that way, but, or mentors or people that have discipled me over the years and my type of personality as kind of the achiever, performer, sports guy, whatever you want to call it. It's my temptation is a frenzy of activity and it's really easy to find my identity there. Uh, I like to talk. I, I don't always like to listen. Uh, this is just an indictment on, you know, those, those are just kind of my personality traits. And so, um, when it comes to prayer, it's really easy for me to pray and tell God what I want, talk to him about my needs. Um, but I found that listening prayer is, is, is an area that, um, when I do it and not do it well, not in the performative sense of the word, but when I do it, um, well, it's the most transformative aspect of my prayer life. And uh, yeah, I, I also agree with that. I think there's a, a myriad of, of distractions and it's a lot easier to find ourselves in the comfort of the distraction, um, which is actually a false comfort because behind that comfort, I've found uh, the moment we, we come out of that, we've been lulled to sleep by that comfort. There's the, the terror in a sense of having to actually sit with ourselves, but that's where God does his best healing work <laughs> is what I found. But it's painful, isn't it? Like it's in some, if you, if you have not developed that muscle, it's a painful place to sit originally, but it's like our good shepherd, our good physician who needs to take the scalpel out to make some incisions, to pull some things out. I don't know if you see it that way or if you have people on your retreats that come away with this sense of, wow, God has revealed things in my life through that silence. But I would say the flip side of that coin also is that in that place of silence, we're also enveloped in the love of God in a way that um, we don't always experience when we're in the frenzy of the busyness of our lives. That's really good. I think there's a, a certain trepidation that comes with coming to a place where the noise stops and you realize how loud your own thoughts are in your own head and the conversations that are going around and around and they're springing from your heart and you take away the distractions, you take away the sound, you take away you know the constant interruptions that the phone generates. And you're, you're left with a lot of noise and you're mm. right. That's the very first beginning and it can be terrifying Yeah, to hear all that's going on in their head. But what I, uh, I try and move us into a, an idea and you guys are studying Genesis and I, it's an amazing, but into the Genesis one and two type of praying, whereas you are walking and talking with your father who loves you and who made you and who knows you and this communion he desires to dwell with you and to know you and and so moving into i i used to pray knowing that it was prayer was access to god but learning to pray that's born out of silence draws you into a communion and friendship with god 
in his world that he loves and you realize he loves creation so much and when it's silent and it's quiet you can hear creation you can hear the wind you can hear the birds you can see and you can look and you can almost start to see it with god's own eyes but you just can't when it's noisy Mm. so there's there's a lot of benefit of it in terms of it just also just gets you out into nature yeah absolutely that's cool. And as I think like we head into this crazy season um, that we're all strepi- stepping into here as we round the corner to December, um, the crazy loudness and the noise that just kind of increases in this kind of environment, what a valuable word to make sure that we take time to just Christmas and the word Emmanuel means God with us, mm-hmm. which is similar to what happened in the garden, right? God was actually with them. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully this Christmas we can step into some seasons of practicing the presence of God, which is the whole point of Christmas, is that Eden has returned in a sense that we have access now, like you're talking about, through the blood of the Savior as he became human and a baby at birth to actually walk with God again and to be able to be comfortable in your best friendships, you're comfortable in silence together and that you can be comfortable in just being with God and getting rid of some of the, I think, especially for moms, like I'm thinking about my life right now, like I'm already thinking, what are, what are we going to have for Christmas dinner? Do I have the presents? Is the house decorated? There's so much um, that can distract us in this season and just stepping into some intentional seasons of silence in order to actually celebrate what this actually is, which is God coming and being with us. Emmanuel, talk a little bit about Kim, um, you just stepped into a sabbatical too, where you actually went away for days by yourself, which is also extremely intimidating to me. I would never want to go away for days and just be by myself. Trig? I, I might enjoy that in the season of life that I'm in right now with two toddlers. Talk about stimulus overload. When you get home, it's just chaos till they go to bed. And then I'm like... I could use some silence. So maybe that's actually the way that God is actually going to press this. uh, He disciplines the one he loves, right? So maybe that's the way he's going to press this uh, value into my life. Um, Well, I have friends that actually, I'll say, oh, what'd you get for your birthday? And they'll say, oh, my husband gave me three nights away at a hotel (laughs) by myself. I'm like, that sounds like a terrible present. (laughs) Terrible present. But Kim, take give us your one takeaway. Um, first of all, where'd you go to be by yourself? Did you um, briefly say, like, did you establish a routine that was meaningful? And what's your one takeaway from spending, if you had to say one, I'm sure you had more. What's your one takeaway from spending time? Yeah, as I was thinking about taking the sabbatical, which again, I'm just so grateful that my church allows for that. Um, they gave me time to do this. But I Several months as I was preparing to go, I read First Thessalonians 5 that says, you know, rejoice always, pray constantly, and then everything give thanks. And I've probably read that a million times. And then I read the next words, which said, for this is the will of Christ Jesus in you. And I'm like, oh, this is the will of Jesus. Jesus really, he wouldn't have said it if it wasn't his will. And so I really need to think about what this means rejoicing giving thanks and praying constantly like what does that mean and what does that mean for me as a shepherd of the women at all saints that this is god's will for them do they know how to pray how are they praying or are they scared to pray do they wonder if they're doing it right and so i was really thinking about all of these 
questions and I realized I I really wanted to know the answer to this. I really wanted to have a different prayer experience with my body. I wanted my body to be involved in prayer and not just my mind and not just ideas and not just abstract. And so the intention for my sabbatical was to go to a different part of the garden and learn how to pray in a different way. And Libby, I went for almost three weeks by myself. <laughs> Why? How'd your husband do? He's amazing. He's so great. Um, so he was all, all, he was, you know, all in on that. But I, I, th I learned, I think I learned how to pray with that extended time of silence. And God also put a woman in my life. Her name was Sister Dorothy. She was an Orthodox nun. And she, along with a friend of mine whose name is Betty Hood, who died a few years ago, I think these two women, both of them single, both of them in just long, constant communion with their with, with Jesus um, really gave me some good hooks to hang, you know, my prayer walk on. And um, the biggest takeaway, let's see, I think just learning to pray, well, I learned a couple of things. Praying, whether that means you're reading the scriptures, praying it always out loud has been really helpful because you're using your mouth, you're using your tongue, you're using your teeth. Mm. And th that word, the word of God is coming back into your ears and it's, you know, faith by hearing. And so God's word coming out of you and coming back into you over and over, um, that's been really, really valuable to turn just all scripture reading and hymns and so on into prayer. So praying out loud Praying through the Psalms, also out loud. Um, I found myself, so Sister Dorothy that was there, I went to Greece, a tiny little island called Sikinos in the middle of nowhere, population 200. <laughs> so it was very quiet, very, very quiet. And I found myself singing old hymns, childhood hymns, walking with God, singing, praying out loud and then praying short prayers. So, Lord Jesus, as you will and as you know, have mercy. Jesus, help. You know, very short prayers that would just come out as you walk, as you breathe, um, in all the in-between times when you're not doing official praying. It's kind of a lot of answers for my one takeaway. That's awesome. Super valuable. Yeah. I love it. Oh, and prayer is all about communion with God, and this is been true all the way from the beginning of the story. And as you know, we've been in Genesis and we get this picture of God who creates the world and then creates humanity with the purpose of communion, not because he needed that communion, because he had relationship within himself, eternally existent in a relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but out of the abundance of his love, he creates humanity, both male and female, in his image to be in communion with him, to walk with him, to talk with him to be with him. And as we've been moving through this story, uh, it's interesting to me, maybe this is a helpful segue, that one of the things that you talked about um, was busyness, but then also it being embodied, 
being aware of our body, that bodies, that we are actually, our bodies are good, that God created them with a purpose. And actually one of the ways that some evil enters the world is, I think, jealousy over the fact that we've been bestowed bodies and that we have been bestowed this image of God, which is what Genesis 6 is about. Uh, when uh, these other beings that God created, um, angels, are jealous in a sense. Would you say that that's a correct interpretation? Jealous in a sense is what I would describe, that they have been, that human beings have been bestowed this image and so they seek a way to take on that image. And it's a really interesting and weird passage and we can go back first, but I do want to touch on that Genesis 6 and this Nephilim and what is this sons of God mating with the daughters <laughs> of men. But, but I, I don't know why I made that connection. But yeah. there is something very uniquely human about having a body. I think that's a good connection because you see at the beginning in Genesis, you know that God has already created this heavenly, this, a heavenly family. Exactly. And there's this, this, that are all also created in his image and who also have free will and who also like mankind to come are, are their, their purpose is to be on mission with God and rule as he would rule and do his will in, in the heavenly realm. And then God makes this amazing world and he makes Adam and he makes Eve and he doesn't put a heavenly being to rule over it. He gives that partnership to the created Adam. And yeah, would you might not be jealous? <laughs> no, I, I yeah, I, I, I get it. I mean, it's rooted in, I'm sure it's rooted in a little bit of pride too. Like, God, why didn't, like, I can do that. Yeah. Why didn't you pick me? Why didn't you pick us? But it kind of sets up this whole biblical pattern of the second, um, the second one being chosen by God. And so, yeah, I do think that there's exactly what you said. Uh, there, there may be some, there may be some jealousy. There may be some, this is the way that they're going to corrupt the seed of Adam. You know, are these creatures, these Nephilim that are being born between, you know, the sons of God and the, uh, you know, the fallen sons of God and women, are they still made in the image of Yahweh? Um, so there's, there's lots, lots going on there, but God, God is intent to bring about, you know, his, as Rod's done an amazing job in his sermons, but intent on bringing this line through the waters. Yeah. Do you have anything to add there? Do you want to, how, how do you want to approach this? Do you well, want to back up into really four? Deep dive. No, we don't need to, but just Should for I a read little, the text maybe? Yeah, I was going to say just for a little bit of clarity, yeah, let's, um, let's, let's go there. As you guys know, at Crossroads, we're taking very seriously our walk through Genesis and we approach this. We said this in our first podcast, Rod has been thinking about this for years and approached it with much fear and trepidation because the book of Genesis, not only brings up a lot of very important and foundational premises for us as a human culture, 
as humankind, um, who we are, what our identity is, what are the challenges to that. So this isn't an easy, it's a very encouraging and necessary book to walk through, but not always easy. And in this section that Rod had last Sunday, we also have some larger chunks. So there's no way we can get to everything Everything, that's in the chunks. And there's a very unusual, unique, and confusing couple of verses in Genesis chapter 6 that Rod didn't have time to go into. Otherwise, it would have taken him the whole sermon to try to explain what's happening here. And to be honest, it's a little ambiguous. Um, So I thought, Trey, we started talking about it, which I love. We need to talk about it because here at Crossroads, we don't want to skip over the things in the Bible that are confusing or slightly unclear. Um, because we don't have all the answers and that's okay. Um, we don't want to just focus on the things that are crystal clear and, um, orthodox and things that we can, we, we believe the whole Bible is true. We believe that God breathed the whole Bible. Every single bit of it has profit for us in our lives. So just because something is confusing or unclear or awkward, um, or outside our comfort zone, we're not going to skip over it. So our intention today is to walk through some of what Rod said, but also to definitely embrace this one section of the text that God gave yeah. us that's confusing. So yes, which Trey, ends, read which, it. Which ends up being beautiful. And I'll add a little commentary as I read it, just so that we have some clarity. And hopefully we can talk about what we do know, and then we can we can say things that are speculative. So it says this, In Genesis chapter six, when human beings began to increase in the number on the earth and daughters were born to them, verse two, the sons of God. Now that's an interesting word there, uh, but it's the Old Testament use. uh, It's an Old Testament way of referring to angelic beings. And the way that the reason that we know this is that they're referred to in Job one, verse six, two, verse one, 38, verse seven, Psalm 89, verse six, Deuteronomy 32, verse eight. You can look those up. Those are just a few. So we know that these are angelic beings. That's the other family of God, you might say it. That's why it's called the sons of God. And that's what you were talking about, Kim, that that family that God created almost before he created Adam or humankind, there were these beings, these angelic beings that he had already created that aren't human. So Adam is the first human, but mm-hmm. these were these angelic beings that he had already created. Yep, exactly. And if you are reading like the NIV, it might say the sons of Israel, we, I have good reason. The ESV, our NRSV, RSV, even the message says sons of God. The sons of God translation comes from actually uh, the newest revelation of Dead Sea Scroll texts that are believed to be the oldest. And the sons of Israel come from the Masoretic text. So that's really heady and lots explain, of like stuff yeah. out there. Dead but, Sea text, Masoretic text. So can you give context though? Because I for the for the Bible nerds, <laughs> they'll appreciate that. Yeah, for those of you that are not Bible nerds, um, affectionately called Bible bangers, sometimes in <laughs> um, my growing up days, um, all those things we could each one of those things we could do a podcast on mm-hmm. in and of itself. But in layman's term, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found recently in Israel, and they give us confidence in our text because it pushes back the earliest copies of our text by a thousand years. So we're getting closer and closer to the original time that the Bible was actually written, if that makes sense. Yep. So when we read that, that kind of, whatever that says trumps anything that we've translated at a later time because it's earlier. So it's closer to the original. 
And I only say that because that translation of verse two, the sons of God versus the sons of Israel has enormous implications on the rest of our theology that is based on this text. Okay, so let's just go back to the basics, though. So when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married uh, any of them that they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth human race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then the rest of six, seven, eight, nine goes through the story of Noah. So Kim, what's going on here? And then we can plug some New Testament verses to kind of help us navigate this. Thanks for that, Trey. I'm kidding. If you read it. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) No. Yeah, yeah. You've got it all figured out. This does highlight, I think, us Western enlightened minds being kind of low context readers. Mm. The, you know, the original hearers of this would have had a really high context. And so sometimes it's frustrating to us because we would like things spelled out so that we could understand it and follow it. Whereas these readers and these hearers wouldn't have needed it necessarily so spelled out because it was so clear and so obvious. Yep. And so one. And so the author just touches on it. And I think about um, an aspen forest in in a way that all the roots underneath of an aspen forest are connected, but we, you know, we kind of see these big primary aspen trees and we forget about the little four verse aspen tree over there. That's just still really important to the whole story. But if you take it at face value, and like you said, if it is, you know, the B'nai Elohim there that are being referred to, then it's, you know, it seems that as if their understanding of this text would have been this very, very, inappropriate um, crossing of boundaries to where the the heavenly realm, those that are created in the heavenly realm to live in that realm with God have crossed serious, treacherous boundaries to come in, uh, take on bodies that we also know, you know, we've seen this before. It's not a first time or foreign or one time thing is that, you know, heavenly beings do come down and take on male bodies. And that's where I talked about the body thing, right? Yeah. That there's something significant about that. And this is kind of the introduction of demon possession in a way. Yeah. And, and that those bodies would have been certainly, you know, excellent and beautiful. I mean, even, even when in the Sodom and Gomorrah story where the, those men come in and they're attractive and their, their bodies are seen as something kind of other. So we see that there's something going on here that God just cannot 
he just cannot abide by and he cannot tolerate it. And he's going to, you know, put Noah and his family into a house, basically a floating house, and he's going to carry them through these waters. And then I also think about, you know, the the audience that's hearing the story, you know, the, the Hebrew people in the wilderness with God and with Moses. And God, had they're looking in their rearview mirror, and Yahweh has essentially done the exact same thing for them. He's carried them through the waters, mm-hmm. you know carried them through the flood and the flood has come crashing down in, you know, Genesis six, it's the Nephilim or it's the, uh, the, the flood on, on everything that's corrupt. But in the Hebrews are looking at it, that has just happened to them. Mm. And the yep. flood has down on what God has again said, you know, Pharaoh thought he was divine. There's all Yahweh has gone against all of these gods in Egypt And again, it's just another affirmation that what was happening in Egypt has already happened once, and it's not, God is not going to allow that. But God, again, has carried this group of people through the waters from that land to this land in order that he may dwell with them. And he just keeps doing that and doing that until Jesus. Yeah, and that 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 idea of the realm or land is super important. And it's really interesting to me that the first 11 chapters um, of Genesis have there's, there's the center text. And then you have, you have three rebellion narratives on both sides of this, this, the final um, of three rebellion narratives at the beginning of Genesis. What are those three? Give me the. So you have Adam and Eve. Yep. You have Cain. Yep. And then you have this, and this is in a sense, angelic beings descending out of their realm into earth. But then here's the really interesting thing. The final rebellion narrative of three on the other side of the flood is the tower of Babel where human beings are illegitimately trying to ascend to the heavenly realm. So you have the heavenly realm illegitimately seeking to descend into the earthly realm here. And then there's three more rebellion narratives. And then the final before we, get to Abraham in chapter 12 is you could say human beings illegitimately trying to ascend to heaven. It's just an interesting fun fact. I, I haven't really made sense of it in my mind, but I want to go to the new Testament really quickly because there's two very prominent texts that actually give us a little bit of word to this. And one of them is in the book of Jude, which we spent a bunch of time studying this summer. Yeah, it's great. And the other is in first and second Peter. So first in Jude 6, it says, uh, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, which you just mentioned, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now here's 2 Peter 2.4. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept in judgment. And here's 1 Peter 3, um, 19. Uh, but he made us alive in spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And now baptism saves you not by means of the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience on the basis of resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, let's tease this out just real quick, and then I want to get your thoughts, Kim. So there's only one account in the days of Noah. So this is how I know it's referring to this, uh, in which angels left their realm, and it's this account. So Peter who's Jewish, obviously, is pointing back to this. And then Jude, who's obviously also Jewish as a half-brother of Jesus, is pointing to this as well. And the reason that we know that is it says in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And then he talks about sexual morality. So there's two New Testament texts right there that point to this. So we can't ignore this text. That's my point. Would you agree? Yeah, and interestingly, those those texts in the New Testament are talking about false teachers. Mm. And comparing these false teachers to these this situation here in Genesis six, and um, I just think always the combination of idolatry and sexual boundaries seem to go hand in hand, and there's some boundaries that are being crossed. Maybe they're not sexual boundaries, but when when shepherds of God's people, false teachers, do something profoundly wrong um, when they're teaching false doctrine. And there's some kind of equivalency there that God sees as just equal and evil. So I, I, I don't profess to be understand that entirely. I just know that in those texts, both of them, they're talking about false teachers. Yeah. Well, and there is that, there is a, there's for sure a connection between idolatry and sexual sin because what was sex designed to do for Adam and Eve was to create this, this almost supernatural unity between a man and his wife. Um, And this is the type of unity that God wants with his people, which is why then the church is called the bride of Christ. Um, And so when we pursue other gods, it's not just sin in the way that we think of doing something bad against God's law, but it's actually adultery. And this is why God often, you know, grieves uh, his people Israel as they pursue false gods, false worship. And And he oftentimes will use the language like, you have prostituted yourselves. So that's a really interesting point. I know we're going very deep here. Well, I just want to say I love what you said, Kim, because as I was reflecting, because I had the chance of sitting quietly for a second and just kind of listening to you guys talk, what you said was there's something about a false teacher that you feel like could be equatable to this scenario because the text seems to tie them together in the New Testament. And as I'm reflecting on these heavenly beings— who were a part of God's family in the celestial realms and in a sense, his partners to, like you said, be on mission with him. And then the audacity that those partners would have to come down to earth, his precious creation and seek power for themselves by exploiting 
the creation that he had bestowed for them to be a part of managing, that's exactly what happens with false teachers. These partners that are supposed to be on mission with him exploit the the sheep that he has given them in order to puff themselves up to make them almost small eye idols in a sense. We see that in the church all the time. I mean, we see these like where there's these celebrity um, driven scenarios where then this person who's like almost elevated to this celebrity status, by the way, not just by that person's fault, but by the fault of the sheep that are also pushing that person up. And then this great fall because God just will not tolerate that. He will not tolerate the exploitation of his creation and his sheep. So that's an amazing connection, Kim, because that's exactly. That's so, so good. And you even think of the, the result or the fruit of this is this kind of celebrity esque type creature who comes out called the Nephilim. <laughs> Which is super interesting too, because Paul references Satan disguising himself as an angel of light in second Corinthians 11. And the whole text is about false apostles, mm-hmm. false teachers There is something so desperate about the human heart to follow anyone or anything other than Yahweh. And (laughs) man, you can just see this. You can see that. I mean, of course, now we're in the realm of speculation. So I want to be very clear about that. You can you can see these beautiful giant like creatures and this um, ancient worldview where, you know, strength and beauty and you larger than life is something that they're very attracted to. Same with us who would come down and say, I represent God. I, and you, they like, you look like God, you're beautiful. You're, and then for them to enter a union with that and for that to be a false representation of who God actually is and then actually a destruction of um, his creation and his plan, as he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. This was certainly not what he was talking about, right? This is a false representation of who God is and what he wants. So in a sense, they're just taking on this identity, exploiting the, exploiting the name of God and also destroying his creation. So that's, that's huge. But maybe we could just back up and maybe take a, take a breath out of the deep waters of this specific text and just talk about, because you made a comment earlier, Kim, about how post-enlightenment, you know, these types of texts make us uncomfortable because we don't always want to think about the spiritual realm. And it always blows my mind, even in my own life. I'm like the center of my being, the core of my faith is based off of the truth that God decided to put on human flesh and bone was crucified, died, was raised, and then ascended to heaven. (laughs) That's a very supernatural event. Um, But maybe we could just talk about the reality of the Hebrew mindset when it came to this idea of a spiritual realm in the first place, and that there is a cosmic geographical battle that is being waged. And, you know, we use modern language to describe this too. When we talk at Crossroads, we say, what is your street corner? And that's a way for us to talk about our own personal mission for Christ. 
what we're really saying is wherever God has placed you, whether it's your job, your family, your community, you bring the very presence of God by his Holy Spirit that indwells you and you are taking back ground for the kingdom of God. So maybe we could just talk about that. What is the Hebrew mindset when it comes to this cosmic geography and this idea that there is a spiritual realm, it is real, and we need to be aware of it? In many ways, they were far ahead of us in this area, and they attributed everything to, there was nothing natural. There was no natural disaster. There was no natural famine or flood. All of these things were attributed to the deities. And so there was a very personal relationship with these deities, I would say. And we, on the far, far, far other end of that spectrum, think that science, (laughs) and we can't wrap our minds around a scientific explanation for this. And we forget that the Bible doesn't teach science. The Bible doesn't teach different, the Bible teaches us about God. And so we can look at this text and say, okay, here's, you know, six or seven verses or something that absolutely makes no sense. And there's some legitimate questions. You know, people talk about the Matthew text where where it talks about um, where angels aren't given in heaven. You know, they're not given in marriage in heaven. So how could they take on bodies here and enter into marriage with earthly women. And the two, the two families aren't the same. You know, there's a, the heavenly realm. They don't, they aren't given the blessing really to go out and multiply. They're not given the blessing to go out and be fruitful. And they're, they're, they're given, a, we don't exactly know what the blessing is. It's given to the family and heavenly family, but we do know that they're supposed to work together. Yeah. There is supposed to be some overlap the heavenly realm and the earthly realm and God all on mission. And I would welding together, which is what the, we don't, we're going to see it at the end. So I imagine it's not too far a stretch to say that it was that way at the beginning (laughs) is that the heavenly realm and the earthly realm and God were, there was some, you know, it was Tove was Tove. And then at Genesis three, like you said, even that, Earthly and heavenly realm was rent. Yeah, and, and Tove means here, good. After six, it's all gone back to chaos, even and including this combination of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm now, not in union and beauty and Tove with God, but in chaos and in evil and in corruption, and the earth is ruined. And so it's kind of like come this full circle. Yeah. We were given the mandate to rule and subdue, not the angels. And pride is at the center of a lot of sexual sin. You know, I think of the guys I mean, in, the, in the pejorative sense of the locker room talking about locker room talk as a negative thing. And oftentimes that would be sexual in nature. And it was about the conquest and it was about showing your worth through the pride of sexual conquest. And there's this idea that through sexuality, we take control. And there's something there because, you know, there's this odd passage in 1 Corinthians where we, where it says that we will, we will actually judge the angels, right? 
we are going to judge those, these that we're talking about here in Genesis 6. We are going to judge these angels. I don't, I do believe that all that God has created, and we don't know, we know our story. Like, we know the story that God has given to us because we are earthly creation that he has made and he's offered it. But we're not privy to the heavenly realm and what, what their you know, story necessarily is. But we are, we are made in the image of God. And what a blessing that is for human beings. What an honor and what a privilege. And what you see in this text is that all that God has made, even when we were talking about that silent retreat, just the, the delight and the joy that he takes in all of his creation. And I'm reading out of the um, Tree of Life version here. I have my Bible, the Tree of Life version. But instead of corrupt, it just says everything was ruined. Everything that God had made was ruined. And like a, like someone that has built something beautiful and it's ruined, I mean, you just grieve. Your heart's just broken over that. And so you see this idea of kind of the, the prodigal father who's just grieving and sad. And I'm, I'm in First Samuel, it says the same thing about Saul, who interestingly, Saul is introduced as being very tall. And you realize that these Hebrew re- readers and audiences, they're very suspicious of tall things. And I think it starts here. <laughs> tall things, you know, whoever was taller and broader and was more like the gods and um they they say that saul is tall for a reason and it's not necessarily a good one really a good one yeah yeah well i like actually kim to go back to what you said in that the ancients were actually farther ahead of us in this arena in the sense that they had no modernity to kind of veil the effects of the supernatural versus the natural. So like you said, we attribute thing, oh, natural disaster. The ancients wouldn't. They would say that was a supernatural act. And so they saw this, the um, realms of the principalities and powers more readily than maybe we do in, in our scientific Western worldview where we like to explain everything away. They did not hesitate in any way, shape, or form to attribute um, powers and principalities to things that happened. And Rod always says they understood far better than we do that sport was not just sport. Money was not just money. Mm. Sex was not just sex. All of these things held a power. Um, And every single one of those things is ripe to be idolized by any of us at any time, the moment that we can give something like that a foothold into our hearts. And so there's a, there's a strong power that's actually behind all of those things. And so I love what you said there, that they recognize things to be supernatural. They recog- they were suspicious of things that were tall. That's very interesting because then when we see the two spies actually come to decide, I'm sorry, the 12 spies to decide if we should take the promised land. And they say, it's filled with Nephilim. It's filled with giants. We can't (laughs) do it. I mean, they're literally afraid of these people for the main reason, because they saw their size. Mm -hmm. Um, And my heart also wonders, is there a trigger back to this Genesis six at that point? Like, no, these are dangerous people. Like this is, 
And even in that moment, God would have been with them. Let's just say these Nephilim that they saw in the promised land were supernatural and spiritual beings. God at that point, his desire for them was to say, I will be with you and you will take that land. And my takeaway from that is he's with us and he desires for us not to be afraid of those principalities and powers. He desires us to take ground in a sense, to move into those dark places, scary places where some of those inappropriate powers have gained on us and said, I'm going to move back in there and I'm going to take, if the, if the Israelites would have trusted God in that moment, he would have given them the promised land regardless of who or what was in it. And, um, Go ahead. I was going to say amen to that, 100% to that. And we see it when they go, you know, King Og, he's huge. He's probably one of the, who they would have considered a descendants of the Nephilim here. And they go in and they route him. Yahweh routes them. Yeah. And what do we know about Og? He was king of Bashan. And Bashan has a sinister reputation in the scriptures right um and actually what's really interesting about that is that matthew 16 which is jesus talking to peter at caesarea philippi is situated near the mountainous region where mount hermon is right in the region of bashan am i right there yeah, you're right. Yeah. Actually, geography matters in the story. Geography actually mattered in the ancient world, too, because we're going to see this in a couple of weeks in the Tower of Babel. Like you just mentioned, they're building this huge structure to try to get up to God. And so in the ancient world, anytime you have a high point or a mountain, that becomes a, a place that's worth pilgrimage. It becomes a spiritual place. It's the closest we can get to God. So if we could climb this t- tall mountain or if we could build a tower we could get closer to God. And so there's always this ge- geographical idea that the higher the place, the closer to God. That's some Texas, that's from Texas, like the higher the hair, the closer to God or something. <laughs> the higher the hair, the closer to God. <laughs> You've got to have heard that in Texas. Um, that's but Dallas. then also the um, geographically, if you have a cave, that's like a gate to the underworld. So geographically in the ancient worldview, there's all these gods, goddesses, geography, all of these things, they just saw this this power behind so many things. And we just fail to recognize that in our modern. In fact, in the ancient world, like it wasn't David versus Goliath. It was Yahweh versus Dagon. If you had any kind of a war, the deities were assigned regionally, geographically regionally. So Yahweh was predominantly known as the God of the desert. And 75% of promised land is desert. So he's the God of that geographical region. But anytime they had a battle... Um, a physical military battle, they saw that as God versus God. So David versus Goliath would have been Yahweh versus Dagon. And you go away from that saying, whose God won? Which God was bigger? Which God was stronger? Um, Which, can I can I read something super interesting about that? Because you're talking about geography. One of uh, my favorite Hebrew scholars, uh, I took this quote because I was like, maybe it will come up today. But this is from his book talking about second kings and he says in second kings 5 15 through 19 the inlated naaman returns to elijah and begs him to take payment for healing him elijah repeatedly refuses and finally before embarking for syria naaman makes a strange request to load two mules with dirt to take back with him 
dirt. I can't think of a few favors I'd ask less for of from a prophet in a receptive mood, but dirt certainly isn't one of them. The request is so odd that it's hard to avoid wondering if Naaman needed some other kind of therapy. Why would he ask for dirt? But Naaman was completely in his right mind because in 2 Kings 5.17, Naaman follows the request with an exclamation. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. The dirt that Naaman's new allegiance or the dirt and Naaman's new allegiance to God of Israel are related. Naaman was a man with significant duties in his home country. He couldn't stay in Israel, but he could take Israel with him. Why would he want to? Because Naaman's unusual request stems from the ancient and biblical conception that earth is a locale for a cosmic turf war, and Naaman wanted dirt from Israel because Israel was Yahweh's land. It was Yahweh's territory, and the dirt, which is Yahweh's domain, is holy ground. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so good, because... Yeah, and that's just another, we're, we're low context readers and we just skim it. That's confusing. And so we just go swipe. I don't get that. So we just, but without any, without any context, that just doesn't make any sense. Okay. So let's go to Jesus and cause that's a really unfamiliar passage, but let's go back to Matthew 16, Caesarea Philippi. We're talking about this idea that there's cosmic geography, there's holy ground. So let's just briefly tell the story. Kim, what, what's going on in Matthew 16? If you could summarize when Jesus is talking to Peter, what's he saying and what's going on in that story? Since I don't have Matthew 16 memorized. No, you're good. But like, ba- what's the basic premise? I could, I, I have it right here. Um, if you want me to read it. Where are they? Where are they? That's, I just want to know where they are. Caesarea they're in Caesarea Philippi. Oh, they're at Caesarea Right Philippi. by Mount, Mount Hermon. Yeah, so that's where the big grotto is, where Pan is the center of Pan worship, which again is very sexual with, is it goats or something along the way? And I remember Rod, Rod saying, Jesus marches in there. I mean, talk about taking territory and moving into dark places, but Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip. And he marches right into that city where no good joy, Jewish boy would ever, ever go. And he looks at that big rock, and really they thought that, yeah, you know, the gods there, they picked those strong rocks with a grotto, and it's all lush, and they pick all the best places in Bashan. And um, he says to Peter, on this on this rock, I'll build my church. Like nothing. King Og, these deities that come down, Nothing is going to prevail against my church on this very rock, this very place. Um, you'll take this land. You'll take this earth back. Mm. So so powerful. And again, without visually being able to see there, see it, and to see the what's, oh my gosh, it's just amazing. It just blows open that whole story. Oh, yeah. Because this is what he says. He says, well, who do you say the son of man is? And the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Mm -hmm. Jesus looks at the disciples. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is telling Peter, you're, I'm going to build my church on the darkest places. (laughs) I'm going to go into the most disgusting grotto of pan worship, the world of seeing the very place that was considered the gates of hell. And I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to build my church on this rock. That's cosmic geography language right there. Yeah, and I think we can't lose track of Genesis 1 in all of this, that God created the whole world. And our Bible says the whole world is his. And so the moment that we don't see things in this supernatural cosmic principalities and powers type of worldview, and we just get lulled into that comfort, and now we're back to the silence, Kim, and we just lulled into the entertainment of the noise, and we don't take what's happening seriously around us and the forces that are affecting us, whether that be in what we watch or how we spend our time, we are constantly not just standing in neutral ground. We are either giving giving territory to one kingdom or taking back territory for another kingdom. All of life is that. And so with God behind us, like he's saying here at Caesarea Philippi, you have the power to move into these dark places and take back this territory for me. And I don't think we think that way. I think we're either just super comfortable and happy and we're not thinking about the principalities and powers until something really bad happens to us. And then we think, is God punishing me? What's happening? We start to think about the spiritual and supernatural realm in those types of moments. Or we're actually living with our eyes wide open to say, hey, like the New Testament says, there's, there's more going on here. And we're paying homage to that in the sense in how we live and how we take these things seriously. And I would like to suggest, Libby, I agree with that, that we really need to examine what force and what power is behind digital technology and what it wants from us. And I would say what it wants from us is increasingly more and more and more of our attention and increasingly more and more and more of our face. Just just think how often our face is turned to a phone or computer. I mean, we have screens in our cars, we have screens in our living room, we have screens everywhere, our faces are turned. And the Bible is always saying, turn your face to me. God says, turn your face to me. My face is always turned to yours. And what power would want our face turned so often for so many hours a day to a screen? And it's not just the content that's in the screen. It's not that we can say, you know, Pornography is in there, so it's bad. Don't look at the content. It's the actual form. It's it's the it's the grabbing of our attention, the calling for our attention. I mean, you just think of like you get on an article, and then there's 15 different hyperlinks in there. You click on the hyperlink, and it sends you someplace else. And then from there, you click on something else, and it sends you to that recipe. And it, then it sends you over there, and you're constantly giving you new information. It's the form of it. It's the what power, it's such power, which brings it all the way back to silence, is we have to say, what am I going to do to reduce the power? Because it's not what is, di- digital technology is doing something to you. It's not if it is, it's what it is. 
but what are we going to do to cut that power at its knees? And I think silence is part of that. And I definitely think prayer is part of that. Which yeah. is modeled, this is often what's the most convicting uh, to me when we talk about silence and solitude is that Jesus is constantly withdrawing to places of silence and solitude to pray and be with the Father. And so if he is doing that, how much more should we? Yeah. Kierkegaard, um, that great Danish philosopher, said, if I could give the world one thing, I would give it silence. For without silence, I cannot hear the voice of God. And to me, that just encapsulates, um, I think the silence, we can hear him and our perspective is adjusted to the things that are actually true and the things that are actually real and the things that are actually worth our time and our pursuit. And we can like pull back that veil becomes a little bit more thin and less distraction of what the intentions are of our own hearts, what the intentions are of the outside forces that we're allowing to affect us and what God's true intentions are for us. And it's not just this horizontal me and God thing, but God's intentions for you that you would walk in identity with him and have the courage to walk into those dark places, to be on mission with him and take those places and those territories back for his honor and for his glory. Um, and that's, that's a high calling for us as believers. And there's absolutely no way we can do that if we don't take some of these things seriously, because totally. we're just going to be destroyed. And so then the question I think is, should we be afraid? And it's a resounding no from Jesus. Just read Mark 6, Matthew 10, Luke 9 and 10. Jesus says, I've given you authority because all authority has been given to me. And so I, I also just want to talk about that. Like there's, if you are in Christ, God's very Holy Spirit resides in your being and you are redeemed. And now you possess and not in a name it, claim it way, do, do not hear that, <laughs> but you do, a, you do possess authority through Christ. And uh, so I just wanted to put that out there in case it's like, holy cow, this, you know, we're talking about the spiritual realm. And then the question is, well, should we be afraid? Should we live in fear? And obviously, based off of that text in Matthew 16, where Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church right here. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Um, should give us confidence. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add there, Kim. Yeah, a very, I, they, I think, quiet confidence, similarly to what you see Noah doing as he's just quietly and confidently building the ark in all of that chaos. He's just, just very confident and settled, I would say, almost even restful or resolute in his, in his walk with, 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 God with Yahweh. And so I would say that's what it looks like for the church to be really effective is to be just quietly going about our business following Jesus. And in a very, very anxious, very restless, I'd say even in our technology, the restlessness is just built in. And I only see that increasing, but the church can really prevail against that or move into that by being at rest, um, 
Libby, a while back in this conversation, you talked about Yahweh being the God of the wilderness versus the the other gods, this, the, the pagan gods, all choosing the high mountains and the lush places and the rivers and the springs and the grottos. Look, look at what Yahweh chose. He chose the desolate places, the quiet places, and he brings his people into the wilderness. Why? Because he wants to live, be with them. And so for us to to with such quiet confidence, speak when we need to speak, but let our yes be yes and our no be known to quietly build on mission with God wherever he sends us to go. Yeah. And I love that Rod tied in that idea into chapter five that yeah. in his sermon this last week where he said, I want you to notice one thing about this genealogy. It says that all of these people died. But yeah. then we get to verse 22 and it says that Enoch walked with God. And then verse 23, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Every other person in that genealogy just says they died and they died and they died. But Enoch, not Enoch. He walked faithfully with the Lord. And when it was time for him to go, the Lord took him. Yeah, that word took there actually shows up in um, the Ten Commandments story too. It's it's the idea that God married him. God took him for himself. Amazing. He took him to himself. And so the relationship that they had um, was so beautiful that it culminated in not his death, although maybe he died actually on an earthly sense, but that death wasn't a death. It was a true union or a marriage that God brought just brought him to himself where he found his true home. Um, that was, yeah, that was awesome. I I okay. actually want to close, is if I can, with this amazing poem that one of the people from our church sent this week. Her name's Haley Smith, and I got permission to read this. She came up to Rod after uh, the sermon and just said, I wrote a poem during the sermon of what you had said, and so I'm going to read it for us. Um, good. All things are just good. We could do better, but could we? Could we be missing meaning, maybe mistaking good for just okay, bland and satisfactory? Could God's good contain more, a shalom, a refrain, that this is how things should be, and yet sin has stained? State-of-the-art cities, skyscrapers stretching high, and the aspirations of every man and woman, animating progress, propagating population, producing medicine, technology, inventions, money, science, and schools, but with all of these tools to help us win, do any of these deal with sin? Sin, let this sink in. The solution is not more stuff, but more of a savior. Sickness, silence, suffering, stain, people strain, crying out in pain, a world that has rejected God following the choice of Cain. See, this story shines a bigger spotlight right on the main character, brightly illuminating the seed, the child, the Christ. Hidden in these, this list of names, people must choose fame, blame, the stain of Cain, or Seth, the renewal of Shalom, God's sweet refrain, brought forth finally through forgiveness found in faith. If the Bible were still being written, what would words say about you? How does your story show? prove. Shine the light on Jesus. Do you walk, relate with the God who made you? Loving, asking, 
Before it's too late, for a heart undivided, mold me like clay. Seek justice, love mercy, and walk as one who understands that God gave before man. He had this whole thing planned, and what we have, this love we don't deserve. Great grace, growth, glowing with glory to be good again. So beautiful. Like she took the whole Dang. sermon and just shoved it into a poem. It's outstanding. Woo. Thank you, Haley, for that gift. Talent. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I I know we, we went deep today. <laughs> um, Kim, why don't you just give us an encouraging gospel word to end and then we'll sign off. But we are so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you so much, Kim. Seriously. Loved it. Uh, you know, going back to Genesis 1, God builds this beautiful house. He fills it. He decorates it. And then he he says it's finished and he moves in and he moves in to be with those people. And that is his entire, that's the story of the entire Bible is God determined to dwell and to live with his people. And I think that's the gospel story is that Jesus comes to ensure he carries us through the waters of death, brings us to life on the new shore and order that we will be with him and he will dwell with us forever. Let's go. Amen. <laughs> amen. I love right. it. Well, thank you so much, Kim. Uh, it a- it's such a privilege to have you on. And hopefully I'll meet uh, you and your husband in person sometime if you make your way up north. But probably not during the winter because no one <laughs> wants to be here anyway. Uh, no, we like snow now. We've lived here for 20 years. A little snow's okay. <laughs> hey, there we go. White Christmas. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. awesome. God- guys in your ministry, I think it's an awesome thing that you're doing. I hope it bears much fruit. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we pray that also. All right, this is The Locker Room where we break down sermon stories and scripture for the race of our faith. If it has been serving you, please hit the follow and notification bell. That way you will uh, get notified when new episodes arrive. And as always, you can hit the Q&A box and let us know if you got any thoughts for the podcast. Thanks, and we love you. 